The Start On Demand. On demand. Canada's Bianca Andreescu has made history, becoming the first Canadian to win a major tennis event. So we've got lots to discuss on her, including her impact on the tennis world and the power of visualization. Also today, we've got to talk about the other big sporting event that happened over the weekend, the Banjo Bowl. Bombers crushed the riders. Bob Irving weighs in. The election is tomorrow. We'll talk about how undecided voters fit in. And we'll have a general conversation about how to fight back against paralyzing indecision. And Michelle Obama is coming to Winnipeg. I'm Brett McGarry. Alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb, we are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Monday, September 9th podcast for The Start. To set this up, we want to play this piece of audio here. Congratulations, Bianca. You've talked about wanting to inspire young people across Canada. <clears throat> Canadians are going crazy right now over this win. You've made history a where were you when moment in Canada. What does that mean to you? I've said this many, many times before, and I'm going to say it again. It's been a goal of mine to inspire many people. Um, especially Canadian athletes. I think that this win will hopefully do that. Not only this win, but just what I've accomplished this past year. Um, Because so many Canadian athletes have paved the way for me when I was young. And hopefully I can be that person to them. So Bianca Andreescu wins the U.S. Open on Saturday. Historic moment for Canada, for sport in this country. And uh, we wanted to talk about our favorite quintessential Canadian moments. So, Greg, you've got one. Go. Well, for me, that involves the greatest Canadian of all time, a man who was born here in Winnipeg, Terry Fox. His Oh, you stole mine. <laughs> oh, sorry, Jeff. His uh, Marathon of Hope, and of course, ended 18 miles from Thunder Bay, September 1st, 1980. And Kelly, you'll remember how quickly the Canadian media jumped on board and that telethon that happened less than a week later. Yeah. It was absolutely mind-blowing. And uh, to make the best of what was the worst situation at the time, I think, is also quintessentially Canadian. And and keep in mind, that was achieved uh, before there was any kind of social media or GoFundMe-type pages and that sort of thing. So I uh, couldn't agree with you more, Greg, on that. Yeah. Loren? Well, I was... I, <laughs> I was torn between something kind of just completely nerdy, like it's not an event. It's just that you're proud of it every time it gets brought up, and particularly now in the States when someone points to our health care system. And so it's not an event. It's more just like it keeps top of mind for Jeff Brown's rolling his eyes. And that's what I was thinking. Uh, and then I actually, the Terry Fox one is a good one for me in the last, in the more recent memory would be uh, the Tragically Hip concert and just how people di- united mm. across the country and what they did when they played that final concert. So that's, that would be in my top five for sure, because I, A, was there for it. Not that I all respect in the world for Terry Fox, but also how um, it you ended in London, set. Ontario? I wasn't, no, I wasn't. For Terry Fox. Yeah, you when you said I was there wasn't for it. Wasn't there for Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. I'll clean up anyway, my ears. Anyway, Don't put words on the woman's mouth So for, for me, it'd be a bit now. of tragically hip. Yeah. Kelly? Well, I think I might be the only one in this room who was old enough to... Uh, yes, you were. <laughs> Safe to say. Yeah. Be in a school gym watching Paul Henderson score uh, in the 1972 Summit Series. Uh, and for different reasons than what you described for Terry Fox, Greg, uh, that united the country. Uh, because, uh, I mean, we were sitting on pins and needles as the Russians uh, gave it to us, including here in Winnipeg, uh, one of the games that didn't go as well for Team Canada as they thought. And so to come back uh, after losing the first game in Russia and then winning the next three and winning as dramatically as they did on that Paul Henderson goal, 
that uh, that would be right up there. But you know, it's kind of interesting. There's been a lot of talk about what's going to be the sports story of the year: the Raptors winning or Bianca. And I would say the tiebreaker is Bianca. She's a Canadian. Right. Good point. Yeah. Not yeah. a team yeah. that plays in Canadian Canada right. yeah. with a bunch of Americans not to on the roster. What the of Raptors course not. Did, but no, yeah. of course yeah. not. Okay, so if I say the Blue Jays, uh, Joe Carter. Home mm. run, oh. World no. Series. That's Iconic pretty good. Moment. Absolutely, yeah. 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 That's a great one. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that was a big. I think I actually remember. I think I ran out into the street cheering, jumping up and down like you a little alone idiot. in that. Yeah, <laughs> that's very similar to this past weekend for me because I'm not a huge baseball fan, but watched that right to the end. And then same thing Saturday, found myself watching a whole game of like I never would have watched that much tennis in my life. The Bombers were playing. I, I flipped back and forth, but I I turned. I watched the. I started with the bombers and switched to the switch to tennis, and then I stuck with it. And I think that's the that's the same kind of moment in terms of Canadians pick something that they normally wouldn't necessarily have yeah. watched and. It's really like the basketball earlier this year that brought sure. so many extra people. The baseball's like that. The basketball's like that. Bianca's like that. I'll never forget my wife chewing out the Raptors for missing one three-pointer after another. I thought, you don't even watch basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't they make every shot? To take ownership really quickly, dude. <laughs> Jeff Braun? Uh, I picked uh, June 6, 1944. Juno Beach, uh, Canada helping out on D-Day. I mean, it was I a wasn't there, smaller, by the way. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It was a smaller, you know, wasn't... The brunt of D-Day, or by no means, America had a much bigger task at hand there. But Canada stepped up and did its part. And, I mean, we're always small militarily-wise compared to a lot of the rest of the world. And back in World War II, we're so much smaller than we are right now. So it's even more of an accomplishment if you what think about, about it like Vinnie that. What about Vimy Ridge? Hmm? Hmm? Totally agree, <laughs> I don't know much about Vimy Ridge. So I... No, there's lots of people who say that's when Canada yeah. became a country to a great extent, uh, came out of the shadows of of our association with the United Kingdom, right? Uh, that's uh, that's a great one, Jeff. Yeah, you know, and, and just as we're sitting around here at the talking about this, you know, there are so many great moments in history for this country to celebrate. And I think it's wonderful when someone accomplishes something like Bianca Andrescu did that helps us remember some of the great things that we've achieved as Canadians. Mm-hmm. Someone's yeah. texting right now about uh, Team Canada 2002 at the World at, at the Salt Olympics. Lake City. Salt, yeah. Lake City. Salt Lake City, yeah. And winning that. And yeah, that's also a where were you moment for me. I was at Boston Pizza. <laughs> Just, just hoping, like a sweat in my head. I was so sweaty just watching that game. Like, please let this be yeah. enough. Bob Cole's call yep. of that game is, uh, it's right up there with Touch em All Joe, mm-hmm. uh, Brett, uh, as far as uh, iconic calls are concerned. When when Bob Cole called that, uh, that gold medal winning game in Salt Lake City. Who was it that didn't touch the puck, that let the puck go through Lemieux. the legs? Was it Lemieux? It was Lemieux. 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 Jerome McGinley. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. then when they scored, Bob Cole was like, surely that has got to be enough. And we yeah. were like, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting excited thinking about that too. Yeah. Well, I changed my mind. I'm putting bumps? that back on uh, the list. That's uh, top for me. Okay, so today marks the last chance for politicians to make their final pitch to voters. And we want to ask you this morning, have you already heard what you needed to hear to make your decision for tomorrow's vote? Are you still waiting or are you someone who makes that decision while hovering over the ballot box? You're not alone. Curtis Brown is with Probe Research and he's done the math on this. Well, our most recent survey said that there were about 12% of, uh, of people who were, uh, that we polled in our survey. Now, keep in mind, some of those won't vote. But of those, there are definitely going to be some who are really going to be genuinely on the fence. Um, you know, thinking about it, you're probably looking at maybe 5 6% of the electorate uh, that's going to, be in, uh, going to be in that boat. And, and they're really going to have to make that uh, determination uh, when they're actually hovering over their ballot on Tuesday. Is there a question that you're finding people are asking themselves when it comes to how they're placing their vote, there's always the people who have been loyal to a party or loyal to a policy, but there's a whole host of people that might just vote on an issue. There's a few different factors we know that can end up making a difference. Uh, I mean, in this election, our polling shows that it's healthcare is the big issue that's driving it. So I think that's going to be a pretty strong consideration for some people. Uh, affordability, taxes, some of those sorts of things is a secondary issue that I think for some people, if they're listening to some of the Tory promises around uh, tax relief, and uh, that'll be something that they're making their decision on. And I think they're pitching that too as well. I was west of Polo Park over the weekend uh, doing some errands and noticed a group of Tory supporters going around with stickers and they were pushing the whole education tax and the fact that the 
Conservatives promised to phase that out over 10 years. The NDP stickers, of course, have focused on health care. But Curtis Brown says for many Manitobans, it's not about those promises. It's actually about the people making them. We're in a very interesting situation where the Conservatives do have a pretty uh, healthy lead in every polling, uh, every poll leading up to the election. But yet, Brian Pallister has some very high negatives. So that tells me that there are going to be some people who are wrestling a little bit with whether or not to vote for uh, the Tories, because they may not be big fans of Brian Pallister. At the same time, I think that also does affect the NDP to some extent as well, because even though his numbers weren't quite as negative, Wab Canoe uh, has a net negative view among the electorate. And particularly, there are some some voters, and, and, some, and, and, and we saw in some data, some people who may have voted for the NDP in past elections who uh, didn't in 2016. Some of them, I think, do have some question marks about him just because of some of the personal stuff. And so... Those sorts of things, that those leadership dimensions, I think, will also be an important factor. So I don't know about you guys, but for me, it will be a game time decision for tomorrow. I have not made up my mind. I could say the same thing. We're expecting a federal election call to come sometime soon. I can tell you right now that I've waffled all over the place already with my thoughts there. So I can't see myself deciding that no matter what's promised, to be honest. Yeah, it's difficult for a lot of folks. Uh, especially if you're not affiliated officially with a party or haven't had a long time affiliation, at least in your own mind, you don't necessarily have to be a card carrying member of any one political party to predominantly, if not exclusively support the policies and those who are running for that party. Uh, That's why I have a hard time with party politics overall, because uh, I just find there's no one party that can sort of blanket my beliefs and my values. So that's that's why I always have a difficult time in voting. 745, what are we talking about as it ties into this? Well, we were looking on Friday, Greg and I were having this conversation about indecision and all the places in your life beyond the ballot box that you struggle to make a choice about maybe a new apartment or buying a car or you just make decisions for all the wrong reasons. And so we've reached out to a Princeton prof who has uh, some tips and that might not be what you expect. I'm looking forward to that because I am always crippled with indecision, whether it's major decisions or when I'm standing at the grocery store going... Sour cream or an onion or extreme cheddar cheesies. I can't decide (laughs) and I don't want to do both because I know I'll eat both of them. So, yeah. Canada's, as we know by now, Canada's Bianca Andrescu made history on Saturday, becoming the first Canadian to win a singles title at one of the major tennis tournaments. Andrescu made history, beating Serena Williams in two sets to take the Grand Slam singles title in New York City. Last month, she won the Rogers Cup. You'll remember this after Williams retired from the match. Williams fought back from a 5-1 deficit in the second deciding set to tie things up at 5-5. And Drescu fought back to win the set 7-5. I think, Loren, under normal circumstances, most, if you know, many Canadians may have been marveling at the resilience of Williams. And Drescu, uh, with one of the most Canadian responses of all following her win. First Canadian ever to win a major title in the sport. What does the moment mean to you? It's so hard to explain in words, but I'm just beyond grateful and truly blessed. I've worked really, really hard for this moment. I'm, I can't complain. This year has been a dream come true, and now being able to play on this stage against Serena, a true legend of this sport, is amazing. As things tightened in that second set, Bianca, what did you have to overcome to get across the finish line? Definitely the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) I know you guys wanted Serena to win, so I'm so sorry. At one point, she actually plugged her ears. And at another point, uh, while she sat down at 5-5, she actually put a towel over her head in order to give herself some clarity and some time to herself as best she could. Mark Arndt is executive director of Tennis Manitoba, joins us now. And Mark, you've seen the rise of Bianca Andrescu. You mentioned when we spoke to you on Friday that she was in Winnipeg not so long ago for a tennis tournament, what what does this mean uh, on a personal level? We discussed what it means to tennis in Canada, but what does it mean for you? 
Uh, you know, first of all, good day, guys. How, how y'all doing? <laughs> Couldn't be better, actually. Good, good. Yeah, same thing. You know what? It means so much because having been in the sport for so many years and and always been being like, you know, a, a second world country when it comes to tennis, it's like it's nice to be a, a top a leading tennis nation uh, in the world where other countries are, are calling and asking Tennis Canada for advice and asking what's in, in the water that we drink. We're producing so many great players. Producing such a great player at such a young age, age uh, we can no longer say the star is rising. It is, it is there. It is high. It is shining. When you have someone like that in in your own country that you can look up to, she's talked about it often, wanting to inspire the next generation of fans. How does this work for them in terms of bringing more people to the game? And it does exactly that, and especially that it's a female, so it, it shows the girls that they can do it. And uh, um, there's so many that look up to her, and I know that for a fact uh, here in, in Manitoba locally, you know, from from my neighborhood, and you know, as coincidentally at a at a soccer tournament on the weekend, and, and people were talking about tennis at the soccer, and it's really great. And you never have that. I mean, look, I'm here on the show with you guys here once again, and uh, it's doing wonders for as far as marketing the sport. It's doing wonders for us. It's making my job a heck of a lot easier. And uh, uh, yeah. I, I'm heading off to the office uh, right after this call, and uh, we're going to see. I expect a, a busy day of phone calls and, and inquiries about how to get into tennis. And what about her composure? Like, we heard how calm she was in that interview after the match and the steps that she took to to fight the crowd out of her head. I mean, she's 19 years old, and she took on the legend, Serena Williams, and won. I know, when you think about it, like she walked right into the eye of the storm and she was right in the middle of, I guess, America's tennis backyard and Serena's backyard and took on 26,000 people screaming and, and yelling and, and doing whatever and trying to disrupt her in between points and between serves and things like that. And, you know, I'm just thankful that, uh, that Serena didn't, uh, didn't upstage the, uh, the final again and, uh, and then do something silly and, and just, just played. And, uh, I mean, she got, she got beaten, she got whipped and, and, uh, you know, yeah, it was 5-1 at one point, and I think maybe the moment got to Bianca, but, um, you know, she held herself together, very composed, and she was very composed, and, uh, I mean, I, I don't think anything can really derail her, like, as far as being so mentally tough and the focus that was there, and, yeah, she came back from 5-1 to 5-5, but, but, wow, like, to go and finish it off 7-5 and uh, take the title is pretty amazing. We're going to speak with the sports psychologist later on this morning. Just this whole idea I think that uh, Bianca used the terminology visualization no less than five times in her 17 minute post match briefing with the press. Uh, that whole idea of psychology as part of sport, that's, that's got to be something you get a ton of questions about, Mark. It is, and you know what, and she said it too in, in one of her uh, pressers, um, she basically said, you know, look, we're all good, we've all got skills here, and what sets us apart is the mental toughness and and, and being being right uh, mentally and, and mentally tough, and, and that's, that's exactly what it was. I mean, to, to do what she did uh, is a massive premium that's going to be put on uh, on that toughness and, and training, the brain training, I guess they call it, and uh, uh, and I see it as well. I mean, our provincial team does work with a sports psychologist, and I know players do that and it's it's increasing with each day and and especially with results like that and somebody promotes it the way she did and she said listen this is what got me over the hump here was my 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 visualization and whatever else she does the meditation and all that and you know people will turn to that to get the edge mark before we let you go the men's final Rafael Nadal emerging victorious it went five hours like it's five sets too long for a tennis match it's not. I mean, it was a very compelling match. That's the thing. Like, I mean, usually the ones that go five hours are so close where it does keep it does keep people glued to the TV sets or or on the edge of their seats at the stadium. But um, I mean, there's an argument, but it, but it does show you like how fit these players are to go five hours and. You know, even if it's at room temperature, you've got to be so mentally tough again. And that physical fitness, that's why tennis is such a beautiful sport, because it, it gives you everything. So anybody that's trying to get into it, I mean, it gives you that. It, it gives you the uh, the fitness, and that's a lifetime, life, uh, lifetime sport. And uh, those guys demonstrated yesterday just exactly what how strong you have to be to be a tennis player. And, and again, that focus is, is unbelievable between the two of those. Mark Arndt, Executive Director of Tennis Manitoba, joining us live on CJOB. Mark, thank you again for joining us. Okay, guys, thanks, and have a great day.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, I have been faced with all kinds of indecision in the last few weeks as I had to get an apartment, and then I had to get a couch, and now i got to buy a coffee table, and I need to buy some bar stools and patio furniture. Oh, my God. <laughs> Overwhelmed. I'm melting down just thinking about it. The list got longer as you were going through it. Yeah. I, I saw you going, oh, and this and this and that. Yeah. You kept adding stuff to it. And, and Loren, let's face it, uh, it's not always easy to make a decision when you have one thing you're focused on, let alone a bunch of things to distract you from what's already a difficult decision. Well, what got us going on this talk is the fact that uh, polls open tomorrow. And if you haven't decided who you're voting for, your time is almost up. Uh, we just played some audio from Curtis Brown in the last hour about how thousands of us are still undecided. And that had us asking about how we make decisions from who to vote for to, as Brett pointed out, which piece of furniture to buy and how those decisions can often feel paralyzing. So we went looking for help. Tom Griffiths is a professor of, professor of psychology and computer science at Princeton, and he's co-authored a book that makes a relatively surprising suggestion. Here is part of the intro. Every harried renter, driver, and suitor you see around you as you go through a typical week is essentially reinventing the wheel. But they don't need a therapist. They need an algorithm. (laughs) An algorithm. So Tom Griffiths, Griffiths joins us now to explain. Good morning, Tom. Hi there. Before we get to the solution, what's the root of the problem? Why do we think so many people just struggle to make some of those basic decisions? Well, part of the reason is that it's actually a, a difficult computational problem. So the problems you were just describing of doing things like choosing an apartment, those are problems where you often don't get to see all of the options in front of you at, all at one moment. And you have to look at one thing, look at another thing, maybe take that one, think about it. Every time you're gathering some information, you're maybe losing an opportunity to, to pursue a, a, an opportunity. And so, so that's something which makes this a particularly hard kind of problem, what's called an optimal stopping problem. What goes into that? Because uh, one of the things on uh, Loren's list is a potential conversation is is choosing a house. And and we often hear from not only realtors, but others in terms of uh, personality issues. Don't make a decision on an emotional basis. But I think we make a lot of our decisions, including our biggest purchases, emotionally. Yeah, I think there are there are two sides of that, right? So I think there are certain kinds of things where you might not want to focus on the emotional part of the decision, like certain kinds of financial decisions. But I think actually buying a house uh, is something where it can make sense to have that emotional reaction, partly because it means that you are less likely to have regrets in the future, right? So it's something where, like, if you're really in love with a house, it doesn't matter what happens, you got that house, right? Like, I think that's something that goes beyond the, uh, the, the, the rational calculus that we might use, but ends up being something that's actually a, a reasonable principle on which to base those kinds of decisions. So is it part of the algorithm then? Is it part of the input that gives us the, the answer to the question of which house to buy? So the way that the algorithms that we talk about in the book, which is called Algorithms to Live By, uh, those algorithms are about how you trade off these different kinds of factors. So the, the most basic algorithm we talk about is something called the 37% rule. And this is a question of how many places you should look at before you're ready to make an offer. I think we're all very familiar with the idea that, you know, we are going to uh, ready to make offers on places. And if you work out the math to say where that optimal trade-off is between looking and leaping, what you should do is look at 37% of what's out there, and then after that, make an offer on the next place you see, which is better than anything that you've seen before. So you, you take that rule, would, does it apply to all sorts of purchases, or is it depending on what it is or how much, what your timeline is? Yeah, so that, that's something which applies to any problem where you're in a situation where you know nothing about what's good, so you, your only way of evaluating whether something is good or not is relative to other things that you've seen. And where you get to view each of those options one after another, and if you go past one, if you kind of walk out of that open house, you're going to lose the opportunity to make an offer. So someone else is going to take that property. And in those circumstances, that characterizes what the optimal strategy is. Okay. Uh, in other circumstances, there are different kinds of algorithms that make sense. So for example, if you know something about the distribution, you know something about what a good thing looks like and what a bad thing is, then that changes the rule that you use. And so 
in those circumstances, there's a rule that says basically have a threshold, like have a very high threshold to start out. And then over time, you're going to decrease that threshold as you get closer to kind of the period where you, you're, you're running out of time for your search. Can I apply this to politics in a vote? Politics a, a slightly different situation, right? So in, in politics, you, you know what the options are. You've got a relatively fixed number of options. And there, the, the problem that you have is a slightly different problem. It's a problem of how do you know when to stop gathering information and be ready to commit? So you're not necessarily discovering new options, but you're discovering new things about those options. And so in that setting, there's a different kind of algorithm. It's a very similar kind of principle, though. Uh, and we, we can make predictions about you know, which things people are going to pay more attention to as they're trying to make a decision. So one thing that comes out of looking at those optimal algorithms is actually the option that you end up looking at the most is probably the one that you're going to end up choosing, or at least the one that you're going to value the highest. And so if you find yourself as you're deliberating, spending more time thinking about one particular party, that might be an indicator that it's the one that you're going to end up choosing. Tom Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the insight. Okay. Thank you. Tom is a professor of psychology and computer science at Princeton. He co-authored a book called Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. So if I've looked at something more often than the other, it might be the same thing as a pair of shoes. Like if I keep going back to the same, say, political party page, the suggestion there is that's obviously where I'm leaning. I guess so, yeah. The same if you keep going back to the store and looking at the same, I don't know, piece of linoleum or shoes or... (laughs) Honestly, I, I, I had to buy buy some flooring for our house. We were doing the basement. Yeah. Picked some flooring. Couldn't just, couldn't settle on it. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Left it for almost a full year. <laughs> came home with the piece of flooring, the sample. Showed it to my husband. He pulled out of the closet the exact same piece of flooring from a year ago. He's like, <laughs> you decided this a year ago. <sighs> Indecisions, man. IG Field. The big win for the Blue Bombers. Yeah, and a big game overall as the Blue Bombers move four points clear of both Calgary and Saskatchewan after Calgary beat Edmonton in Edmonton in the rematch games this past weekend. The Bombers find themselves atop the West Division standings at 9-3. and three. They're undefeated at home. The voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers is Bob Irving. He joins us now. And Bob, I think that uh, the discussions that we had all week this week uh, were two things we focused on the next man up scenario and and backups coming in to to fill in for the regular starters and just this whole idea of the blue bombers wanting to make sure that they they made up for a game that that got away last week in regina and you'd say mission accomplished wouldn't you greg uh, you know the fill-ins did okay rasheed bailey caught five passes for 33 yards he had a a run for 10 on a sweep. Daniel Peterman, who was filling in for Nick Dembski, caught a touchdown pass, three catches for 33 yards. Kind of modest numbers, but everything the Bombers do on offense, it seems, is modest. And then, you know, I always felt that the team that uh, loses on the road in on Labor Day weekend, and that's the Bombers, will have a, an advantage coming home. Uh, you know, the emotional edge because they want to make up for losing their game the week before and all the rest of it. The big crowd, which is behind them and I think lifts them up a little bit. And, and that all transformed itself into a 35-10 bomber win. A very impressive win, complete win, outstanding offense, outstanding defense, good solid special teams, only six penalties, no turnovers, just the kind of things that Mike O'Shea loves. Let's talk about Chris Strevler. On Friday, we had Doug Brown on, and we had asked the question about the quarterback in for Matt Nichols, and had he seen yet what he thought he could see from him? And the answer, short answer was no. He wasn't playing at all at the level that, to which they needed or that he, they thought he could play. Is he there now? That was a pretty impressive performance as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it was very impressive. He's 15 for 21. Loren with his passes, that's a 71% completion, 186 yards. Again, the yards are modest, but he rushed for 70 yards. Johnny Augustine rushed for 75. Yeah, Strebler looked really, really good. And, you know, the fans just love uh, the way he runs with the football. That one carry in the, I think it was the third quarter, where he ran over about five riders, had the people, uh, you know, going crazy. He was very impressive on the weekend, and, you know, I think he took another step forward in his development. Again, we have to keep in mind that he's only started a half dozen games in his career, 
but he looked really good, and he missed a couple of long throws to Drew Walatarski by, uh, you know, a foot or two, and if, if those are completed, then the numbers are much, much higher. So he was very, very good, I thought, on Saturday. And what? Why was Saskatchewan so bad? Like my my dad said to me, were they down like a whole bunch of key personnel? Like what happened? Well, I don't know. It's just this: the emotions of pro sport, uh, Brett. Where you know one team's coming off a loss. The Bombers all week long defensively had been kind of uh, suffering through that last three minutes in Regina, where they gave up the winning touchdown. They were eager to make amends. And then you get that big crowd behind you. You're determined to prove a point to the riders. You think you lost a game you should have won. And all those different sort of intangibles and uh, emotional things go into it. And and then it becomes a tidal wave, you know, where one team comes out and and they get the momentum going and and it just rolls. And on top of that, I guess the most important thing is the Bombers executed, and they love to use that term in football, they executed everything perfectly and Saskatchewan had a tough time with the, the crowd noise. I don't think there's any d- doubt about that, and we thought they might. You'll talk to uh, Mike O'Shea tonight on the Coaches Show, 7 to 8, uh, the first hour of the CJB Sports Show tonight. But Richie Hall, the, the defensive coordinator for the Blue Bombers, Bob, has it's come under a, a lot of criticism over the last three or four seasons. And I just did the quick math here. The Bombers have given up as a team 228 points overall. That's 19 points per game. And in there, you know, there's a couple of pick sixes and, and punt or kick returns for, for touchdowns. So they're giving up as a defense under 19 points per game uh, can you throw away the yardage totals and 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 everything else that goes along with the consternation and the concern about what i think is a, a very good winnipeg defense well i think you can uh, there are some people greg and i think you would agree with me who it doesn't matter what you say or what happens they're not going to like the way richie hall runs his defense Uh, I've always said that, look at his track record, he's had success in this league. And yes, a couple of years ago, the Bombers did give up uh, too many yards, but they have a better team now. And last year, their defense really came on strong and played very well. And they're playing very well again this year. They they have really good players now, and Richie's schemes are working the way he wants them to. So I don't know that he'll ever escape criticism from some, but uh, the numbers that you cited, I think, tell the story. Uh, the Bomber defense is very good. Speaking of one more story, Kelly Moore was pe- mentioning to us this morning the fact that there's only one uh, starting quarterback left in this league, uh, and that's in the worst team in the league, pretty much, in BC. The guy who takes the most punishment, you could argue. Yeah, it's been an interesting year that way. Uh, you know, there, I don't know how you explain it. I think it's just one of those things. But uh, what we're seeing, Loren, is some of these backups are pretty good. Uh, and we're seeing that here in Winnipeg with Chris Trevler. Now, we had an idea of what he could do based on his play last year and the four games he started last year. But I think it's great for the league when uh, some of the frontline guys go out and you, you're introduced to these new, young, exciting players. And it's happening right across the CFL. It, I think it's a great thing. Bob, when do the Bombers play next? They don't play again until the 21st of September. They'll be in Montreal against that uh, fast-rising Alouette team coached by former Blue Bomber Kahari Jones, and then they come home six days later on the 27th and play the East-leading Hamilton Tiger Cats. Bob Irving joining us live on CJOB. Make sure you join Bob for the Coaches Show tonight with Mike O'Shea. Bob, thank you very much, sir. Well, this is World Suicide Prevention Day, and we want to look at mental health, particularly for our kids, and a center that's being built right at Portage of Maine. And I was just saying this out to my colleagues that it goes to show you the need that's out there and the demand that's out there if they're building a facility like this right in the heart of Winnipeg. Greg. Yeah, and uh, this is a t- statistic I think that all parents need to be aware of, uh, people who have young people in their lives, if you're a young person yourself, suicide is the second leading cause of death for Canadians between the ages of 10 and 24.
four. And if you can believe this, Canada's youth suicide race, uh, the third highest in the industrialized world. To talk about this and what we can do to help, Carrie Deschambault is a, is a mental health clinician. And Christina Rambaran is uh, an outreach clinician joining us this morning. Uh, good morning, uh, ladies. Thank you for doing this. Carrie, why don't we start with you? That's a, a startling t- statistic that we just shared with our listeners. It really is. And I think because of that, it shows um, how much of a public health concern that suicide really is in our communities here in uh, Manitoba and across Canada. Um, And I think it really sends a strong message that we really need to look at investing in mental health services um, because we know that uh, suicide can be prevented. With all the talk we have nowadays and the hashtags and the push to have people really confront and challenge others to be more open about their mental health, you'd like to think that the numbers would change or drop or you'd see some sort of curve that would go the other way. And we're not seeing that, Christina. What is there something at play or bigger at play when it comes mm-hmm. to conquering the, the number of people who are, are thinking about taking their own lives? Um, I think, as Carrie kind of mentioned, as we talked about, the stats are quite high right now. Um, And there's that need for, especially with children living with mental illness, um, we see that those that are also living with depression are at higher risk for uh, suicide. And so what is happening is that there's a lack of early intervention and prevention um, for children. There's also um, a lot of stigma associated. um, And it's often difficult for parents to be able to access resources um, in order to get their children the right support. We talk need. about Northern Manitoba all the time and the, and the communities in crisis there when it comes to suicide risks and all that. That would be a primary example of not having the care in your community to help your children deal with it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And access is a huge issue for rural communities. And so um, as part of Kid Think, one of the things we offer is not only supporting in the city, but also being able to go out of the city. Because often what we hear for a lot of families is that if they're out of the city, there is a lack of resources available um, and resources that are able to reach them in their communities. Are Carrie, are kids between the age or young young people between the ages of twelve and nineteen at more risk? for suicide than other segments of the population? Uh, Well, we know that adolescents are one of the most highest risk populations. Um, And here in Canada, we know that I think the statistic is 3.2 million uh, adolescents and children are at risk for developing depression. And again, like Christina mentioned, depression is one of the um, main risk factors for um, suicide along with mental illness. So, Christina... I've got two 13-year-olds. I've got 13-year-old twin boys. And we have conversations about a wide variety of things, mm-hmm. including our our mental wellness and being aware not only of, of how we're feeling ourselves, but 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 for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I deal with a, a form of bipolar disorder that I deal with and manage, you know, on my own. But it's mm-hmm. important my kids realize that where I've come from and, and where I'm going. And, and Saturday, one of my boys, I caught him heading for a shower. They need to shower like twice a day at this <laughs> age. And he had tears in his eyes. And I said, I said to him, I said, what's going on, buddy? He said, oh, I was just listening to a song by a band called Quadeca. And he shared with me the whole background of the story. And the lead singer has been outspoken and sort of in, invited people to lean on him. And he ignored a, a direct message from one of his fans that was reaching out and asking for help. And this song tells the story about that regret. Mm-hmm. And so to see my son emotionally engaged to the point where he's feeling bad for somebody else and and this relation of this story gives me hope, but it gives me concern as well. How would I, how 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 could you manage a situation mm-hmm. like that to to make sure you you're not giving the wrong signals but and having the right discussion yeah. in a scenario like that? And that's uh, it's a really good point that you bring up there. And I think one of the first things you did was recognize um, and also start that conversation, right? And that's the first step um, is that you're starting to show um, that compassion and that you're saying, you know what, let's kind of have a conversation about this. Let's start talking about this. Um, how are you feeling? How are you affected about? It? It. Um, and then kind of getting uh, a good understanding. I think one of the things um, in terms of early prevention intervention just generally um, is recognizing what are some of the signs and symptoms so that we can educate um, people about what to look for and how to respond. But really starting that conversation um, and getting knowledgeable is a good first step for parents, um, for uh, teaching their children what to look for, um, just so people feel comfortable and confident in addressing those. So let's talk about Kid Think. Where are we at with the 
the construction that's been going on down there and, mm-hmm. and what's the next step for you guys? Because we talked a lot about needing to get out into the community, not just having this place, but also doing your outreach work, Carrie. So mm-hmm. where, where's, what stage are we at? Well, um, I'm glad you asked because speaking about suicide and one of the risk factors for that being depression, um, this fall we're kicking off some of our group service programs. And so we, um, one of the first groups we're going to be offering for children between the ages of 9 and 11 is a group for children living with depression um, or who are experiencing depressive symptoms, prolonged sadness. Um, And so we're starting a cognitive behavioral therapy group, which is one of the um, evidence-based treatment models for kids living with depression. And we'll be beginning that October 1st. Do you always think you have to go to a therapist, have that one-on-one? You're talking about sitting there in a room with Mm -hmm. people feeling maybe the way you are. What difference would that make in teens instead of just having to walk into the psychologist or psychiatrist's office? Yeah, well, groups can have a really uh, unique impact more so in some in different ways than going to see a uh, therapist individually. Um, you get that sense that you're not alone. You're not the only one experiencing those symptoms and those challenges. Uh, and then you can also learn from others in the group, being able to see what things they find are working well for them when it comes to coping. Um, so groups are a really unique experience that can be quite powerful uh, learn for both from one another. kids and adults. Yeah. We've heard so much about peer-to-peer counseling and those services. Probably really difficult in a youth situation to to train up someone who's not only dealing with their own issues, but how to speak to somebody else mm-hmm. in their peer group or age group to discuss that. So I'm guessing that idea of that 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 group conversation mm-hmm. might be the next best thing, and versus a one-to-one peer-to-peer situation. Um, it really depends on the needs of the child. Every child is a little bit different. Um, groups are really great for, as Carrie mentioned, it allows a child not to feel alone. It allows and them that's to, a big thing. Yes, and it allows them to do that learning together. Sometimes it can be scary to come um, and work with a therapist one-on-one or a child might not be ready for that, um, especially if they have good group skills um, that they need in terms of being able to form relationships. Then they can meet other peers that can be uh, lifelong supports as they move along. So those are some of the benefits. Um, but again, it really depends on the needs of the child for some children then coming to individuals also uh, very beneficial in terms of one-on-one support and depending on where they're at in terms of their progress. Um, and so as part of KidThink, we have that opportunity to either offer children um, to be as part of a group for therapy or they can come to individual and work with a clinician as well. So you're doing the work, you're setting up shop at Portage and Maine in the Scotia, where Scotiabank had a big, big lettering. Are you ready to move into that spot yet? Or is it still part of the... We are still waiting on construction. (laughs) Yes, there's always delays when it comes to that. But in the meantime, the work continues. It does. Kidthink.ca is the website on this World Suicide Prevention Day. We have been joined live in studio by Carrie Deschambeau, who is a mental health clinician with Kidthink, and Christina Rambaran, outreach clinician. Carrie and Christina, thank you for joining us uh, to talk about this. And actually, Loren, on Thursday, uh, one of my friends is part of a suicide survivors support group. So she's going to come in with the founder of the group as well. Uh, actually, she's, uh, you know, she was married to... Uh, an old friend of mine who uh, who died by suicide. So we will bring you that conversation Thursday morning on The Start. As we look to look back to Saturday afternoon, Greg, and celebrate one of the greatest Canadian sports accomplishments in our country's history. Yeah, we wanted to discuss part of the psychology of that achievement, and not only in sport and how psychology has a role in sport, but in everyday life. Here's Bianca. This wasn't the only time I visualized playing in the finals, actually against Serena Williams. I've been, it's so crazy, man. I've been, sorry. I've been dreaming of this moment for the longest time. Like I said, after I won the Orange Bowl, a couple months after, I really believed that I could be at this stage. And since then, honestly, I've been visualizing it almost every single day. So for, for it to become a reality is just so crazy. I guess these visualizations really, really work. (laughs) Dr. Kirsten Wirth is uh, founder of Wirth Behavioral Health Services. She is, among her other specialties, a sports psychologist. 
Kirsten, is visualization a popular method of helping athletes achieve their goals? Absolutely. Um, Mental imagery or mental rehearsal, visualization, it all means the same thing, but it can be used in combination with relaxation to practice before practices, to practice when you're just in your room by yourself, to do instant mental replays, to enhance um, the sensation and the feelings and all the experiences that happen when you've done something really good to ensure that you know how to practice it to make your next performance more effective. It can be used to tune out distractions. It can be used to get energized. There's a lot of different uses for it. It's not as simple as just sitting, you know, in your basement or in your car or on the field and thinking to yourself, okay, I will win this next game or I will win this next match. You're going beyond that with the visualization. It's not just about believing. Right. Um, I mean, the believing part is really important in the things that an athlete says themselves. And for that matter, you know, the way that we think and the way that we say things to ourselves plays a big role in how that turns around into our actions. So, and Bianca said in her interview that it wasn't just a visualization, but also she was a year ago engaging in a lot of negative thoughts and she was smashing rackets and things like that. And she um, got a bunch of different resources and started to turn things into the more positive. So that mindset and, the you know, positive thoughts versus negative thoughts, those are super important and part of the visualization. But you're right that it's more like a four dimensional experience. So it's it's not it's something that's a skill in and of itself that's the same as learning how to perfect a serve, for example. So you need to learn how to use mental imagery in a way that's going to make it most effective. And that means bringing in, you know, when you're, when you're actually doing the full visualization, you're bringing in what are the things that are around you in that environment during the time that you're trying to visualize. What are the smells? in the environment? What are the sounds in the environment? What are the feelings? Are you feeling the wind against your face? Is your hair blowing? Like all of the little components of the full four-dimensional experience that you would have in real life is what you need to bring into that visualization. Kirsten, I golf and uh, I am the worst. I stand over the ball and say, don't miss it. Don't miss it. I think about all the things that could go wrong. And it's you, people say, well, don't do that. That sounds easy. <laughs> but you said that you have that visualization is a skill. How much training is required to obtain said skill? Uh, I don't know what, you know, an exact number of hours are, but it would be to whatever, just like anything else, like whatever you set your goal to be, that you would say that you've kind of mastered that skill, that's the amount of training that you would have to put into it. So one thing that Bianca said that I thought was really great that a lot of research has shown is she was saying that at her level, everyone can play tennis really well. I just, I put myself in situations where I think can happen in a match, basically, and I just find ways to deal with that so I'm prepared for anything that comes my way because I think your biggest weapon is to be as prepared as you can. So I really think that just working your mind, because at this level, Everyone knows how to play tennis. I think um, the thing that separates the best from the rest is just the mindset. So what separates, you know, the, the good from exceptional is going to be the mindset. And so what she meant was using all of those strategies and actively practicing them. Um, and most psych- sports psychologists will say you have to practice that part as much as you practice your actual technical ability to practice your skill. We're talking about using this at a very elite level, at Bianca's level, but there is so many people who might be sitting at home or in their car this morning thinking, well, hey, how could this work for my life, for my everyday life? What's the answer? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, if someone was going to be going into a sales pitch, for example, then, um, and it's with, you know, some unknown people or something like that. They could visualize what the boardroom is going to look like, who's going to be sitting around them or how many people might be sitting around them, what 
the walls might look like in the room if they have the advantage of knowing what the boardroom looks like, um, what they're going to be wearing that day, how they're going to stand, what are the sounds going to be, you know, of the air conditioning or people chattering or what, what have you, and then visualize themselves giving the best pitch of their life. So the more that you practice what you want to do, the more likely you are to execute it that way versus um, like the example Brent was giving of saying like, <laughs> don't fail. <laughs> you know, the more that you think about what you don't want to do, that the more energy you're spending thinking about what you don't want to do versus thinking about what you do want to do. Dr. Kirsten North, thank you as always for your insight on the psychology of life and in this case, the psychology of the game. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think uh, this whole idea is uh, fascinating about how we can take the tools that professional athletes use, professionals uh, of any discipline can take tools that have allowed them to Take that step from mediocre to outstanding, and this is now perhaps one thing that we could consider in our toolkit. I know I do this myself. Kids do this all the time now, too, in schools. Um, my youngest was in grade one last year, came home with a whole set of cards that they had drawn on with different statements about, like, I I can be kind, I will I will be strong. I will, you know, and it was all about meditation and just thinking about those positive thoughts that keep you going. So they're starting it now at a really, really young age. And I would think that it would apply for all of us, golf or other, Brett. Well, yeah, and I think I was actually talking to a woman at the Bomber game, a friend of one of our sales rep, Tanya, who brought me along to the suite, and she is going back to school for her master's, and she wants to get into sports psychology. And I was asking her about it, and she says that it... It might sound easy to just say, well, just don't do that. Don't be negative. But you you have to retrain your brain, Mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of work to beat out all that negative stuff and replace it with healthy, positive stuff. Well, and it's sometimes just the language. I was speaking to Loren on her way back in after a meeting uh, just before 9 o'clock and this whole idea when the boys curl. I remember I said something to uh, Alexander one day. don't be heavy with this. He goes, Dad, we don't use negative language. <laughs> and I go, you know what, bud? You're right. Yeah. And it's, so it's that whole Switching, mindset you could have just of, said, watch your weight or keep your weight, whatever, but it's weight's not. Weight's key on this or or something. Right, but not you have a, to, don't do this. That's right. right. You're painting the positive. You don't want to plant the seed of, you know, stay out of the water. You don't want to talk about the water. There's different things, mm-hmm. and the the earlier you make that a part of your thought process, I think the better off you can be. doesn't mean you can't reserve, reverse it if you've been a victim of it, but I think it's neat that, that kids are already being coached in this direction, not only with sport, but in life in general. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, in case you missed your chance to win tickets this morning for a conversation with Michelle Obama. We have more tickets to give away all week long. Once again, the pre-sale starts in 24 minutes with the code MICHELLE2019. Tickets on sale tomorrow in full for this event happening on September 24th, but you can win tickets with us all week long. And we were notified of this, Loren McNabb, via email, and I'm a little surprised, I guess, that uh, I even noticed said email. I'm surprised. I'm I'm not surprised you noticed it. Oh, I just hit myself in the face with the headphones in case you're wondering what that noise was, but I'm not surprised you noticed it. I'm just surprised that it's still gone sitting in... I'm not... You're not surprised he didn't delete it. Hitting me in the head with my headphones. I'm sorry. I just lost my entire train of thought. You're very good at responding to emails. It's just that you don't ever check when you have or haven't read them. So what what's the number again? We were discussing this with back to cool school stuff, and you were mentioning one of your biggest issues is email. Yeah. I think I remember the number. It's gone up. It's gone up. I have in my work email. I have. 56,436 unread emails. So there may be emails that I've seen, but I haven't like clicked right. on them. So there's still, so that's just the, the new messages. Right. Is, that the, is that the number beside inbox? Yep. Oh, mine's is not much better, buddy. 37,160. So I'm, I'm right behind you. We have nearly 100,000 unread emails between the two of us. How many do you have, McNabb? Well, it says 695, but they must be just old ones. Like, there's no way. There's nothing in the last 
five years that so I don't what think do you I've do? read. What do I, you I instantly do? read them. Yes. And or delete them if it's something that I know I'm not, and not going to deal with or it's not for me to deal with. To the point, though, on the opposite end of Brett, the same day I was like lamenting, Brett, how can you have 56,000 emails? Or I think the time was 55,000. Yeah. How can you have that many emails unread? He comes around the corner. And he's like, hey, did you see that note on uh, whatever? We should book that for tomorrow. I was like, oh, yeah, I saw it. Deleted it. <laughs> but you're right. We should book it because I, in my mind, it was like something that you might have normally dealt with or Brett might have. And so I just moved on for it. Like I, I need to make the decision or it it pains me to see that that number one next to the mailbox. So, like so it's cannot- potential. There's a potential that the same sort of emotion that you have about not keeping the right. email. He doesn't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it either. So but get, they might I be similar. They might be closer to one another than we might expect. So that had me thinking, let's go to somebody. We were giving all these back-to-school tips for parents about their kids, but I thought maybe Brad and I could use some back-to-work tips post-summer. And that brought me to a great article I read with some advice from the company known as Clear Concept, Inc., and their founding president and productivity consultant is Anne Gomez, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, all of you. I'm enjoying this conversation so much, and I have to tell you, it's so hard for me to not chime in and comment on all of this. Well, let's just—that's what you're here for. Go ahead, chime in. Are, are you who's who's worse, the person who deletes it too quickly, or the one who just lets them pile up to fifty-six thousand? Oh well, uh, I'm going to not directly answer the question of who's worse, but I will say, Lauren. You and I are kindred spirits. So you are applying the one-touch principle, which I applaud. Make the decision once, read it, make the decision, do whatever action you want, which in this case was delete. You know, that's the right decision in the moment. And move on. We don't have time to go backwards. Okay. Why is it? Why is it that if I'm moving, if I'm... Loren, you'll be surprised to know that sometimes I do try to organize my garage, that I do have that (laughs) philosophy of handle it as few times as possible in a fit. Like whenever there's a physical chore, I was in the service industry for a long time. And I always said the laziest servers were the best servers because they planned out their steps and they, they didn't want to do anything more often than they needed to, or go to a different part of the room. But why do I have the, this, this panging? I think like Brett does, I can't get rid of this because I might need it somewhere down the line. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So that, I'm not saying to you know banish it from the earth. You can just move it out of your inbox and you can find it in your delete box in the next short while before your system automatically deletes it, or you can find it in a folder or archive it. Just get it out of your inbox. We What we want to do in our in our digital world is the same as what we want to do in our physical world, and that's streamline it so that we are really um, getting rid of, rid of the wasted time. When we read an email more than once, we are absolutely creating redundancy in our day, which adds up. I could do the math for you. It adds up to weeks and weeks of redundancy in a year. And that's not a good use of your time. You have on your list overwhelmed by email is one of our biggest mistakes. Also, not being organized. I can understand that. What what I was kind of surprised by is one of our – you mentioned in your email to me that one of your biggest mistakes one can make is is – is multitasking? Oh my gosh! See, I yes. would have thought that makes you. There's no such no. thing as multitasking. Okay. It's a there fallacy. There you go. See, now we're back on track. You and I. <laughs> yes. There is no such thing as multitasking. I, uh, uh, Lauren, I was the same as you. I used to think multitasking was the key to getting more done, and I bet a lot of your listeners are multitasking all day long. Many people have two monitors set up. They've got their, their work that they're doing on one monitor, and they've got email on the other monitor. Email is a great way to multitask. Just look at it every you know, 30 seconds. And we don't even realize we're doing this, but it absolutely slows us down. So when we focus on one task exclusively, we are far faster. And, and if you just think about the jumping back and forth, we lose time in the transition. So we're so much faster when we focus, we don't make mistakes, and we're less stressed. So absolutely, we want to get rid of multitasking. Well, and that, that reminds me, uh, I w- worked in a restaurant and went back to the, the back room, the, the guy doing the dishes. He, there were so many dishes in the kitchen, and he was just kind of standing there like, what am I going to do with this? Like he was so overwhelmed, he didn't even know where to start. But uh, it sounds like what you're saying is just pick somewhere start, yeah. and then rip through it. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And the same is true with all of our priorities. I mean, a lot of people are juggling 19 priorities and it's like all those dishes. It's overwhelming. We're like a deer in a headlight. We can't do that many things at once. We can have that many goals and dreams and wants, but we want to, we've got to kind of park them and focus on um, a core set of priorities somewhere in the range of three to five. And at any one time, one at a time. So, are the so priori- over a week, we can have three priorities, but right at this moment, one priority. Okay. So do I make a list for that then? Like, am I, yes. am I starting Sunday night and saying, okay, my three goals or priorities for this week are as follows and, and then take Absolutely. it from there? So we should have, we should have a master list ongoing, right? Like we always have this running to-do list, right? The, the, the day we die, we're going to have a to-do list. Like, so we, I have an, um, an ever-evolving to-do list, and I recommend everyone have, have one central to-do list, not piles and post-it notes and flagged emails. Just one, get rid of all those crappy systems and have one to-do list. Uh, and, then, and then on a Sunday night, as you said, Lauren, great to review it and do a plan for the week, but we're building off the existing list. Okay, so you mentioned that this whole idea of doing dishes. That's one place where I need to organ. If I'm doing them by hand, I have to organize them first. I need all the cutlery. I need to stack everything. I need to sort of see what I'm up against. And then uh, I'm very, very particular in terms of what I wash first. I wash glasses first, and then the cutlery, and then I the plates, and then the bowls, and then the <laughs> pots and pans are the, the last thing that, that, that needs to be cleaned. So this, that's, that's a priority system or a management system <laughs> that I set up for myself. What are some other examples? Well, first of all, you're welcome to come and do dishes at my house anytime. You sound like an exceptional dishwasher. <laughs> um, priorities. So the key is to not spread ourselves too thin. Many people are overcommitting themselves, trying to do too many things at once, and as a result, they don't get anything themselves out in the process. So yeah, that kind of scan of everything we're trying to accomplish in our lives, like in our per- work life and in our personal life, and and create that list that we, we talked about and just draw the line at about number three or five, somewhere in there, and say, these are the things I'm working on right now, and these other things, I'm not even trying to tackle these. They're on the back burner, and I'll get to them eventually. And that's that's for projects. Now, we all have to do tasks every day, like wash the dishes and brush our teeth and you know, ideally build in some exercise. Those aren't projects. Those are operational tasks that we fit, build a routine around. So no one, you know, stays up late and says, oh, I'm too tired to, oh, well, sorry, I, let me just back up. We really, sh- you know, should still brush our teeth, even if we're, we've stayed up late and we are tired, right? It's rare that someone says, oh, forget, I don't have time for it. You know, people still brush their teeth because they've built a habit around it. They've built a routine around it. And so for the operational tasks, we want to build a routine around it. Ann Gomez is our guest, productivity consultant and founding president of Clear Concept, Inc. And one of your life hacks that you've put together, this list, is protect focus time each day. What does that mean? So multitasking is killing our productivity and stressing us out. So we want to protect focus time. Close our turn off email, let phone calls go to voicemail, and focus on one task. And I suggest you start your day with your most important work. Uh, Some people call it eating your frog. The frog is oftentimes that thing we're procrastinating on, that big hard task. But we want to use that rich, juicy, high energy time at the beginning of our day to focus on that task, not kind of be multitasking all over the place. I, uh, I'm now more almost nervous about what I don't do, right, than what I... I, honest to God, made supper the other day, and I was filling the pot with water for the pasta while I was reaching over to put some dishes into the dishwasher. And I was like, I'm amazing. Like, look at me. Like, I am multitasking up the yin-yang. And now I, I must move on from that. Okay, so, so, you know, if you're walking and chewing gum, like, that's okay. Like, that, that is, that's absolutely okay. But if you're cooking uh, dinner for the queen and you want to really make sure that that pasta is perfect, I'm guessing you're not going to be doing the dishes already uh, at the same time. So the, the key is how much cognitive capacity you need for the task. If, if you're working on, um, if you're having a conversation with someone and you're checking email on the side, you, that, you're not having a great conversation. Mm-hmm. So 
if it's, uh, that conversation is really important to you, if you're talking to someone who you want to really uh, connect with, then you're not checking email. You're not multitasking. And I think that just you extrapolate that with just about everything, right? The whole idea that if you're checking email and doing something else, the chances are the other thing is not getting its proper attention or the email is not getting its proper attention. You're not deleting, handling at once, et cetera. So something is definitely going to suffer. There's a reason why there's distracted driving laws. It's so true. So, okay, so this all, it all comes back to email. So can I just comment on these this 100,000 emails, these poor, neglected emails? <laughs> yes, please. That we were talking about? Yeah. The, so the number one thing I would say about those is they're probably all dinosaurs that can be parked. Anything that came in by email over a month ago is a dinosaur. No one who sent you an email in January woke up this morning and said, I wonder if today will be the day I get a response. <laughs> So any email that came in before a month ago, let's take those emails and put them over in a folder called, I will never look at these ever again, and that will be just fine. Or you can call it reference. I love all the advice. Anne Gomez, uh, founding president of Clear Concept Inc. and a productivity consultant. Thanks so much, Anne. My pleasure. Yeah, this has been fun, and I will. I am vowing to try to at least chip away at these emails. It'll take me a year if I go through them all. Listen, but. Ribsy, I'm going to start calling you dinosaur, and you're going to be even more annoyed by that. So get rid of those emails. Well, but when I hear that word, it makes me think of the song Walk the Dinosaur by Was Not Was, <laughs> no. which is a pleasant song. Oh, let's door. watch that on YouTube instead of deleting emails. Yeah, let's do that. They'll just put the emails. Uh, we'll kick the, that can down the road. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.